at our customary gift-giving occasions that we have in our lives, you have probably experienced a moment where the gift is for a specific person, but when the gift is opened, you know that it isn't just for the person who is opening the gift. At some point in our lives, we've probably all unwrapped a board game. You don't play Monopoly or Battleship by yourself, do you? Well, I guess you could, but it wouldn't be nearly as exciting, especially Battleship. You would know where all the ships were. Many gifts are like this, though, where it's more enjoyable to have it with someone else. A video game system may have the name of one person in the family on it, but it's much more fun when friends and family play Mario Kart or Mario Party with their friends. A baseball glove is a great gift for an individual. But from personal experience, you can only throw the ball up on the roof so many times and catch it as it comes off, and it remains exciting. That's just not what the glove is designed to do. It's a communal gift. It's for more than one person. Isn't a baseball glove an even better gift when you have the fun of playing catch with someone? And isn't it even more fun to add more people and to step out onto a field and play with a group of friends to be a team? A gift for yourself is great, but a gift that brings people together is even better. And as we come to our passage today, we are reminded of the amazing gift that Abram has been given. God came to him and, and called him out of his idolatry and unbelief and told him that he was going to be the father of a great nation. And we've seen how God has protected, how God has built up Abram in prosperity. And back in chapter 15, we saw that God confirmed his promise to Abram and he made a covenant with him. And the most amazing part of that whole incident, if you'll recall, was that after cutting all the animals in halves for this ritual ceremony, the burden of that covenant ceremony was not put on Abram to keep the promise. As we saw in Genesis 15, those ancient covenants ceremonies were for the weaker party to walk between the halves of the animals and this weaker party would say, if I don't keep the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. But that's not what happened to Abram, was it? Abram was asleep. He had nothing to do with the whole thing. And instead, we saw a smoking fire pot, a symbol of God himself passing through the halves of the animals by himself. God saying, if I don't keep my covenant to you, Abram, I will bear the curse. What happened to these animals should happen to me if I do not keep my promise to you. And this shows us what a gift, what a gift it was that Abram was in covenant with God because God was doing all the work. God is going to bestow a blessing upon Abram, and Abram simply needs to believe by faith. But in our passage today, we're going to see that this is not just a blessing to Abram, but we're going to see that the covenant promise given to Abram is expanded, and we'll see the sign of the covenant and how it ultimately points us to the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yes, Liam, you were right. We've been talking about Abram, but every week we talk about Jesus, don't we? 
because he points us. Abram points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have for ourselves again, once today, three points to help us go through this passage. First, we see that the covenant of God confirms, is confirmed with Abram. Even though he is 99 years old, God is going to keep the covenant that he promised. God has set all of this up. All this stuff with Abram is set up so that God is the only one who can get credit for what he's going to do. This is more than just a comeback story here. This isn't just a story about coming back. As I've drawn out previously, the story of Abram is a resurrection story. It's only possible. This is only possible if God does the work. Abram isn't going to do this on his own. He needs the resurrecting power of Almighty God. Because God is going to give life where there should be nothing but death. Secondly, we're going to see that God is expanding the covenant. He's giving more detail to Abram on what this is going to be. In fact, preaching through this, this part of Genesis, I've said before, is hard because you have to remember when to say Abram and when to say Abraham, and now that's all over because he's got a new name. He's got his more common name. It'll be easier to remember to say, but it's not just about being easier for me to remember to say. The name of Abraham has important significance. It shows us about the expanding of this covenant that God has made with him. And we're going to see this not only in the way that God speaks to Abram and the words that he tells him, but his new identity, his new name, as I said, tells us this covenant story. Finally, we're going to see the sign of the covenant. Last week I said that we had a story in Abram going outside of his covenant of marriage to impregnate Hagar. I said that that story doesn't show up in too many Sunday school lessons. Well, the last part of our passage today doesn't show up in too many Sunday school lessons either, does it? In fact, if you read ahead, you might have just come to church today to see what I was going to do with the whole story of circumcision. What is that dude going to preach on that, right? That's a tough one. But we're going to see that once again, this is a significant moment in the history of redemption. It's not just an empty ritual. It's not just a strange request. Like so much of what we see in the book of Genesis it's going to point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's going to show us our salvation. So we've got some ground to cover today, so let's get right into it as we start in Genesis 17, looking at verses 1 through 3. And we need to quickly remember where we were at last week. Sarai thinks that they need to try another strategy to get a child. She doesn't trust God. She's being impatient so she suggests that they bring this Hagar, her servant, into the mix. And Hagar becomes pregnant. And things don't go too well, but still we read that God is going to bless Abram's son through Hagar. Ishmael will be blessed. But this child, Ishmael, is not the child of the promise. That's important. He's Abram's son, but he's not the child of the promise. He's not the one who will lead to the seed of the woman in Christ. He is not the fulfillment of this covenant promise yet. And so we know now that for sure this covenant promise is going to be filled, fulfilled through Sarai. And as we see at the front end of the text here, Abram's 99 years old. It's important that we look at this. 
The text tells us this information for a very important reason. The guy's old. Now, we know the story. So we know that the promise to Abram is going to be fulfilled. But it's important that we, that we stop for a second and we look at this first sentence in this text and we feel the tension that we're meant to feel here. It's one thing to say that Abram and, and Sarai are too old to have a child. That's one part of this whole story. And as I pointed out before, it's another thing to say Sarai is... Uh, has a dead womb because she's old and she was barren from the first, uh, in the first place. That's another point here. There, there's two strikes against him. And we're meant to feel this tension that, that he's 99 years old. How is this going to happen? Because we have those two things going against him, but Abraham is old. He's old. He could die. And if he dies, we really got a problem on him having a descendant, right? That's the tension we're meant to feel. And as I said, when I was talking about my points, this is not a comeback story. Don't read the story of God fulfilling the promise to Abram as a comeback story. This is not Abram and Sarai down to, down to two outs in the bottom of the ninth, and they're losing by 12 runs. That's not what this is. What God has set up here in the life of Abram and Sarai is to make us see that there is zero chance that on their own, they are going to have a child. And so we're meant to feel that the story's over, that God has promised in Genesis 3.15 that a Savior will come who will crush the head of the serpent. But it's not happening. The story is over. That's what we're meant to feel. Again, we know the story. But what we're meant to feel here in seeing what's happening is that this, this is over. It's over. It's not going to happen. And so what God has set up here is to tell us that he's the one who's going to do it. And so when the text tells us that Abram is 99 years of age and that Sarai is barren, it isn't just that he's telling us that they're old and they can't have a kid, that they aren't as spry as they used to be. He's old. Everything is against him now. As I said, not a comeback story. This is a resurrection story being promised to Abram, and we are going to see the confirmation of that promise in the words God uses to speak to Abram here. He calls Abram to walk before him. In other words, to be loyal to him and to be set apart. And this is what the idea of being blameless is. Being blameless doesn't mean that he never sinned. We know that Abram isn't perfect because we've seen deception We've now seen adultery. We've seen lots of stuff in Abram's life so far. So what is God doing here? Is he saying, hey, you're blameless, you're good enough to have a child? No, God is calling Abram to be set apart and to live a holy life before God. And this being set apart and trusting the promise of God, when Abram does this, it shows he is a willing participant in the promise of God. In other words, he's trusting that God will do what God has promised. And we see that he is willing to do this because what does he do? He falls on his face. He acknowledges God and who he is, and he puts himself in subjection to God. Basically, this response is saying, I'm all in, God. You're all I've got. You're all I've got, and so I'm putting every last thing in your hands. And so we see 
with the words that God uses, that he confirms that he will keep the covenant with Abram, even though it seems impossible. And what does Abram, Abram do? He responds in faith and he trusts the promise of God. And so as we jump to the next section of verses, we see in our second point that God is going to expand the covenant with Abram. Previously, we saw that he was going to have many descendants, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But now what do we see? We see that he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. This will literally take place through the descendants that Abram has. But it's also pointing to another truth, that the Messiah that will come from him will be more than just a Messiah for his descendants. It'll be more than just for the Hebrew people. And this is the point where you get to go back and you get to remember something very important that you learned in Sunday school. And I know you know it because it was a song. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right? That's an important truth. That's the truth that's being pointed to here. And we need to remember it. This covenant promise here points to the fact that salvation and being in covenant with God is not limited to an ethnic few. But instead, because God is coming with his mercy and grace, he is going to bless all people. He's going to bless people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's going to bring them to faith by his spirit. Faith in Jesus Christ. And we see this promise spelled out for us in this change of name that God gives Abram. Now, I haven't mentioned before the meaning of Abram's name. Now, I probably should have because it's honestly kind of ironic. I was holding out for this passage when the name change comes. But really, his, the name Abram and what it means is, is pretty ironic when we consider what the promise to Abraham is. The name Abram literally means father. And he has no children. Now, we have a new name for Abram. His name is being changed. Well, it's really better to understand it as not as being changed, but being expanded. Because even though you aren't experts in biblical Hebrew, you can see that the name Abram is in the name Abraham. This is easy for us to see. This is one of those biblical name changes that we can really understand because obviously the, the word father is still in there. So we go from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. He's expanding his name. Now remember, I brought this up so many times. Abram hasn't received anything yet. But God is still making promises, and Abraham is still believing by faith. We've already seen that, that God has promised that Abram will be a father to many, but now, now, he's going to be a father to a multitude. There's going to be nations that come out of him, and we're going to see this in Genesis alone. It won't be just one nation. He's the father of the Ishmaelites. We've already seen that that is going to happen through his son Ishmael. Then we have the Edomite nation, which will come through his grandson, Esau. And there are more. And what God is doing is he's drawing out that he is going to keep his promise and so much more. But it gets better. It gets better. Not only will he be fruitful 
and nations and kings will come from him. The covenant is going to be everlasting, and he promises to be a God to Abraham and his offspring. Now, I'm sure you've probably noticed before that in our congregational prayer, I regularly praise and thank God for this, that he has promised to be a God to us and to our children. And that's where this comes from. That is the promise of Yahweh to his people, that he will be a God to us and to our children, and we see it here. This promise is is repeated throughout Scripture, and not just in the Old Testament. It is said again in the book of Acts. And so this is an important truth that we cling to by faith. We trust that the Lord will be a God to us and to our children, that they will be blessed by God with the gift of faith. And so we raise them to fear God and to understand his truth. Now, so far, we've seen God confirm the promise and then expand it to include other nations and and Abram's children. But now we're going to see the sign of the covenant. And as I said a little bit earlier, we just have to be brutally honest about this part of the passage. This is strange for us. This is, this is just going to be weird for us. Uh, we struggle to understand the significance of what's going on. For us, it just seems like an odd ritual. It seems kind of out of nowhere. But the truth of the matter is, this is significant. This is important. It points us to salvation in Jesus. And so as we start to look at this, it's important for us to understand that it's normal for a covenant to be accompanied by a covenant sign. The idea is is that someone makes a promise to you and then you have a reminder of it. You have something that confirms that. And so you will not only have the memory of that covenant, but you have something that brings it to mind and you have something in front of you that says, I am in covenant. Well, so... Why circumcision? Why this? Well, in order to grasp, we have to remember what this covenant was all about. From the beginning of this story, not just this story of Abram, but the story all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, what has this story been about? We've come across it many times. We especially came across Across it, when we went through the genealogies of Genesis, what is the story about? It's about the children of God leading to the promised one. We've been following that story from Genesis 3, right there. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. We've been following that story throughout Genesis. Well, what's happening in circumcision? They, they are to... They are to consecrate the reproductive process to God. They're saying, God, this promise that you have to be a God to us and to our children, that you will bring a Messiah out of our offspring, we are consecrating the reproductive process to you. We are trusting you. Every time they did this ritual, they were being reminded that through them, through their people, the promised seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent will eventually come. And so this is the sign on the Hebrew people. And it was to be done to the male children at the ripe old age of eight days. And this 
wasn't just because the nice part about this is if it's done in eight days, the children don't remember it, right? Uh, eventually, as we get through Genesis, we're going to get to a story where circumcision happens to adult males, and we'll find out how sick they get, and it, it's an interesting story. That's not the reason that it was at eight days, so they wouldn't be traumatized by it. Circumcision was not something that was unique to the Hebrews. God didn't come up with this and say, you're just the only people who are ever going to do this. Other ancient Near East cultures would circumcise their children, but they would do it at puberty. It was like a rite of passage where they would go from childhood to being a man. So why? Why would God ordain that they would do it to babies? Because he wanted his people to set apart their children. He didn't want them raising their children as if they were unbelievers. He wanted a sign and a seal on them that they were in the covenant. Because children mattered. They were important. They were a part of the covenant process with God. These children were separated. They were different from the world. And they were to be raised as children who are part of the covenant people of God. That's why. Now we could stop and we could go into a whole bunch of details about this passage and about the rite of circumcision. But I think for us, this point right here, why babies is important and vital for us to understand. So we're going to dwell on it in a minute. Because I'm guessing at some point, you've probably wondered or been asked, why do you people baptize babies? In fact, you may have had that question when we did a baptism last week, when we baptized Miss Adeline. Well, in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul makes a connection between circumcision and baptism. He says that the new covenant, the replacement for circumcision, is baptism. And so we believe that just as with circumcision, there was a mark put on the child, consecrating them to God, setting them apart to be raised in the faith, so we do the same thing in baptism. That's what happens. We put a mark on our children in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to set them apart, to raise them in the faith, to consecrate them before God. But there's something awesome about the new covenant. Because in the new covenant, it's not only about the male children. It's not just the male children that are set apart. In baptism, both male and female are able to come and they're able to be brought into the covenant community with us. We're able to put the mark on both male and female and we commit to raise our children in the faith, to set them apart from the world. And we trust that God in his mercy will give them the gift of faith and he will save them. That's the connection that we have in this passage to what we do here. But there's also something important that we need to look at as we look at this act of circumcision. Notice that the day on which the male children are to be circumcised is on the eighth day. One week and then a new beginning. That isn't just a random choice. God did not arbitrarily say, let's circumcise them eight days later. That wasn't what was going on. There's a reason, it's connected to the week that something new is happening. 
The idea here is that the child is brought into something new when they are circumcised. They are brought into the covenant family of God. And as we look at how this passage closes out, we see again that this is a sign. This is a seal of God's covenant promise and his faithfulness to his people. They don't stop this covenant sign once the child of the promise is born. They're not consecrating reproduction until Isaac is born or until the next child is born. It's an everlasting covenant. Their continued following of circumcision will show that they are set apart to God. And if they're not circumcised, what do we see here? That they've broken the covenant. And notice the language there at the end. It's important. If someone is not circumcised, they are cut off. Yes, that is a play on words. Because what is circumcision? It is a cutting off. To put it simply, what God is saying here is if you don't do the ritual cutting off that I command of you, I will cut you off. That's that's what he's saying. It's, It's plain. You can see it there in the text. And so this causes us to ask a natural question. If being cut off is an act of judgment, why would God use a symbol of judgment to mark his covenant people? If you think about the whole story of redemption, the whole story of how we're saved, you're going to figure out the answer because it points to Jesus Christ. Blood is shed as these young children are brought into the covenant. Why? Because their sin before God requires a sacrifice. Sin, all sin, is an affront to a holy God and requires punishment. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so the the shedding of blood in in the cutting act of circumcision points to the truth that the blood of the Messiah will be shed so that the covenant people might be rescued from their sin and unbelief. Circumcision points us to Jesus because it foreshadows the divine judgment that would be poured out on our great Savior. The shedding of blood points to the wrath of God that Jesus would bear for our sins. All the way back here in Genesis, it's pointing to the salvation that we have in Christ. And so, this is an interesting passage with a lot of different elements, a lot of different angles. And we come to it today. We, we don't want to just look at this and, hey, we know this. We don't want to just process this for information. We want to take a hold of these truths, and we, we desire to apply them to our lives so that we can live holy lives. And so we have two points of application here today. The first thing I hope that we can walk away with from this difficult text, is that we need to submit ourselves to God. There's so many things in our lives that we insist on doing on our own, things that we don't give to God. Abraham, he made this mistake in his life too. But when he was reminded, when he was reminded of the promise of God and God's covenant faithfulness to him, what did Abram do? He fell on his face. He acknowledged 
that he was a servant of God. He acknowledged that God was holy and he was not. He put himself in subjection to Almighty God. And the best thing, the only thing that he could do was to fall on his face in the holy presence of Almighty God. So just as Abraham had a clear promise from God, the gospel is a clear promise to us. In this gospel, we have the assurance that we are saved from our sin and unbelief, and we have the Holy Spirit to work in us to make us holy. We can trust in that promise in the midst of the difficulties of our lives, because that promise reminds us that we are Christ's own. It tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. Why? Because he bought us with his blood. And so submitting the struggles of our lives to him is acknowledging that we can't do it on our own. And we need him, and we trust him, and we believe his promise to us. Secondly, rest in the truth that God's covenant is everlasting. Recall all the promises that you have in the gospel. I just brought them up. And remember that you are not your own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Whether your struggles are with what you're experiencing in your daily life, you're going through stuff that is hard right now, or whether you are concerned with things going on in the greater world, there is still a trust that can give us peace. The promise of God for us as believers is beyond the temporal things of the moment, and it can allow us to have peace. Remember here how God talks to his people. I will be a God to you and to your children. God is talking about the future. And so we need to trust that this covenant is an everlasting covenant that God will not let us go. At the end of this passage, we read about those who were outside the covenant. If they were outside the covenant, they were going to be cut off. But if we are in Christ, we have a sure confidence that we will never be cut off. Why? Because Jesus was cut off for us. He suffered. He died, not only to bring you into covenant with him, but to keep you there for an everlasting covenant. That is the promise of God throughout generations that he takes hold of his people and he keeps them and he will never leave them or forsake them. And so just as God promised an everlasting covenant to Abraham, if you are in Christ, you have an everlasting covenant with him. You have a promise that is everlasting too. And that is greater than anything that we will face in this world. And so we need to rest in that truth and take hold of that truth. So as you step into the world this week, trust Trust in the everlasting promises of God, knowing that he has brought you into this expansive covenant. You are his child, and he will keep you from everlasting to everlasting. Amen.